Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of Episode 1920-4, where today we'll be focusing on humorist Frank Crummett and Eddie Cantor. These two were humorists whose names you might not know, but whose music you definitely do. The Apostle of Pep, Eddie Cantor, writer of the Merry Melodies theme song and famous for singing 1928's Makin' Whoopi, and Frank Crummett, the one-man glee club who wrote the Buckeye Battle Cry, Ohio State's fight song. Our first artist, Eddie Cantor, was the son of Jewish immigrants who came to the United States from Russia. Eddie was born in New York City in 1892, but was taken in by his grandmother while young due to the passing of his mother and father. By the time he was 25, his performances in blackface on vaudeville and as the Cantor portion of the duo Cantor and Lee had garnered the attention of Florence Ziegfeld, who put him on the late show as part of Ziegfeld's Follies Midnight Frolic, where he would work for the next 10 years. Interestingly, while Cantor would perform in blackface throughout his time with Ziegfeld, he performed right alongside the first black man to play in a leading film role and someone who pushed back against racial stereotyping throughout his career, Burt Williams. We'll definitely be giving Burt Williams the respect that he deserves and a full biography in episode 1920-6 when we review his music. So you don't have to worry that we're glossing over such an important man today. Frank Crummett was born in Jackson, Ohio in 1889 and graduated from Ohio State with a degree in electrical engineering. However, his education didn't become his passion, and he found himself longing to perform. Crummett tried unsuccessfully to make it an opera, but was able to find a home playing ukulele in nightclubs when that didn't pan out. Interestingly enough for all you YouTube ukulele stars out there, Crummett was the first to play the ukulele on Broadway in 1918. While his career in stage and musical performance would be concentrated in the early 20s, Crummett would go on to star in some of radio's early plays with his second wife, Julia Sanderson. They were billed as the singing sweethearts of the air. In today's music by Cantor and Crummett, try and listen for Middle Eastern influences, as there was a fad going on to incorporate some of those melodies into music at the time. You'll hear it in Palestina, a song that both artists played this year. While it may seem strange today for two of the top artists to record and publish the same song in the same year, it was relatively common in the 1920s. Back then, sheet music publishers like those on New York City's Tin Pan Alley were more than happy to have multiple popular artists record versions of their songs in an effort to publicize the music itself and get more people to buy the sheet music for their own playing. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look up the show on Spotify by searching for Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A of the podcast, each of the songs we'll be listening to today, and side B of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each of them on their own. Today's playlist is posted on Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1920-4. You can also find the link to the playlist on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, So make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for Side A of episode 1920-4. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B.
Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-4. You're now listening to the B-side of this podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's music was performed by two singers who covered less serious topics, and who were both more on the entertaining and humorous side of the music, rather than the artistic, although some of the songs they performed absolutely covered political topics of the time. One obvious example of that is Eddie Cantor's All the Boys Love Mary, which earns a total score of 13. While this is a simple song on its face, and the music is reminiscent of marching band tunes which were popularized in the late 19th century by D'Souza, as the song unfolds you find that the boys all love Mary because even though she's not much to look at, her father's the local bootlegger. While we'll be talking more about some songs focused on prohibitions effects in episode 1920-6, it's interesting to point out that everyone well knew where to get some alcohol even during prohibition, and here's a whole song about it. The song is a bit tiresome to listen to, always refraining back to All the Boys Love Mary, and earns a two for catchiness. The song earns a four for artistic statement by describing a scene of Americana at the time, but otherwise this is nothing standout and receives threes in authenticity, innovation, and mastery. In You'd Be Surprised, Eddie Cantor sings from the standpoint of a young woman who's dating a boy, but no one can figure out why. He's not smart. He's not funny. He's not charming or wealthy. What is it? Well, in 1920, you couldn't just write a song about your boyfriend being a good lay enough to keep you around, so you had to say you'd be surprised and reference different situations in coded language. In one of these coded messages, she says, At a party or at a ball, I've got to admit he's nothing at all, but in a Morris chair, you'd be surprised. So what's a Morris chair? It's a chair that reclines, and that music writers of the time seem to think was really more erotic than it is, because it's also mentioned in 1922's My Honey's Loving Arms. In 1920, for a chair to suggest intimate scenes, all it needed to do was recline. How risque. In authenticity, it's certainly possible that Cantor knew what he was talking about, because he'd go on to have five children, and the song earns a three there. For innovation, no new ground is tread and the song receives a two. The song is mildly catchy, if only for its repetition of its chorus, and earns a three there. The song earns another two for mastery, as it lacks complexity for both vocals and musicianship. Rounding out the categories, the song earns a three in artistic statement, since it at least gives some reference for future listeners like ourselves to help understand dating at the time. Now we move on to When It Comes to Loving the Girls. One of the more interesting things about this song is that in the title, it says Pathé in parentheses, which of course doesn't bode well for the score, so I'll just start by saying it earns a 14 and that we'll come back to that. In the 1900s, there were still a lot of competing recording and playback technologies, and the back-and-forth development of how to best record and replay records was still very hot. You may have learned somewhere else that the first records were on cylinders and not discs, and that format was started by Thomas Edison when he invented phonography. After transitioning to discs, there were still many experiments in materials and equipment, and development would continue with companies trying to get in on production while sidestepping patents. Pathé tried to eschew patent infringement by recording the grooves of their records vertically, instead of side to side, which most others did. There were inherent technical limitations with this choice, and one of them was that it would require a heavier and more robust record needle, in this case a permanent sapphire one. Obviously, this was a more expensive needle, but more importantly it meant that without a Pathé needle or an adapter, you couldn't play Pathé records. 
However, with that needle came increased fidelity, which you can hear in this song through some of the brighter horns and vocals that sound less muddy, though there does seem to be a bit more noise than usual. All this technology unfortunately went into a song not worth remembering for much, and Cantor's effort gets threes across the board, with a two for authenticity breaking the mold. I'm sorry, Eddie, but at no point do I believe that you brought a girl back to life with your hug and your kiss. And that's probably because you were married to the same woman for 48 years. Cantor's lowest rated song of the year is Snoop's The Lawyer. While the song was likely more interesting during a live performance, on record it falls a bit flat for its very simplistic music and repetitious refrain. It's not catchy, and honestly, I couldn't even remember the chorus off the top of my head when writing this, even though I had just re-listened to it. In authenticity, the song earns a two, as though it is presented humorously, it's so over the top as to get in its own way. Innovation is a two along with catchiness. Mastery is a three since it's at least moderately funny, and as there is no artistic statement outside of creating this one-dimensional character, it receives a two for a total score of 11 points out of 25. Moving on to the Argentines and the Greeks, when Cantor started singing about immigrants of all things, I was really expecting a negative and racist piece, but this is a rare example of a positive stereotype. Though this song lists many different ethnic groups as having come to the U.S. to make it better, build it, and help it grow, the lament is that none of those groups, of which I should remind you that Cantor is one as the son of Jewish immigrants, is getting as far ahead as the Argentines, Armenians, Portuguese, and the Greeks. Numerous examples are laid out in the song of how those immigrants seem to drive Mercedes and Rolls Royces, but at the same time are shoeshines, barbers, landlords, and other hardworking people. The only negative stereotype that I can ferret out of here, aside from Cantor using some racist epithets of the time to refer to African Americans, is that he says they don't speak English well. But that almost seems as if it's included only as an effort to play on the fact that they still sing proudly the words of my country tis of thee. It's really confusing as a song without the social context of the time, so if you have any more information about it, reach out to us through our usual channels because I'd love to hear more. The song earns threes across the board, except for an artistic statement where for taking a snapshot of New York City in 1920, it earns a four. It's really interesting to be able to compare two of the top artists of the time directly against each other with a recording of the same song, and here we're able to do that with Cantor and Crummett's version of Palestina. Both of the performers receive a two for authenticity, since the subject of the song is a fat woman who could play the concertina well enough that she was crowned the Queen of Palestine. This is patently stupid, especially since the concertina is a type of accordion, and any accordion makes it hard to find friends unless you really know what you're doing. In innovation, both versions attempt to bring in Middle Eastern influences into their music, which was in at the time, and they both receive threes. Likewise, both versions receive two for artistic statement, since they interpret the same source material, which is lacking from the start, in the same way. They also receive threes both for mastery, as their vocals are decent, but the musicians really help hold the line in terms of quality. Where Eddie Cantor loses out to Frank Crummett, though, here, is in terms of catchiness. Crummett just does more with a fluid and interesting job of singing the material. He plays with his voice in a more engaging way, and he's not getting much of a challenge from Cantor, whose stilted rendition makes it seem as if he was reading the lyrics for only the second or third time as he was singing. Here, Crummett receives a 4 for a total score of 14 to Cantor's 3, leaving Cantor with a 13 and the loss in this head-to-head -head showdown. Moving on to My Little Bimbo on the Bamboo Isle, here we get a first-hand look at casual and even lazy racism as Crummett applies stereotypes to Pacific Islanders that portray them as naked, simple, and uneducated savages that only live to please the white men that visit their islands. 
The song receives a one for authenticity for portraying an imaginary islander as a one-sided character waiting for the subject's friend to return, but even more so for the phrase, quote, wearing nothing but a Zulu smile, bringing in a completely different race from a completely different continent, seemingly only because both of them refer to indigenous people. The song doesn't do much in terms of innovation, but also would have been integrating topics at the time and does receive a three for that. As much as the topic is off-putting, the song is catchy with the alliteration of Bimbo Down on the Bamboo Isle being sung with such punch by Crummit that it earns a four there. The song earns another four for Crummit's mastery of using his voice to express different humorous tones, and with a two for artistic statement, finishes with 14 out of 25 points. Now let's take a look at Oh by Jingo. At first when I heard this, I was confused, because I thought it referred to jingoism, which is a hyper-nationalist and patriotic and often warlike political view. But when I looked more into it, saying by jingo is just akin to saying oh geez, and that's what the rest of the song's exclamations are as well, so I'm confident that this interpretation is correct. The song earns a 15 of 25, where Crummit's vocal talents pitch in to elevate this otherwise average song to a foreign catchiness, with threes in the other categories save for artistic statement. In this song, there isn't much of an artistic statement because it's basically saying that there was a really great girl and that people would come from all around and then she'd say she wasn't interested and they'd say OGs and then walk home. Most of the rest of the song is different ways to say OGs and that makes up the bulk of the song by volume. When judging songs about naked native women by Frank Crummett in 1920, it's strange to even think that I would have more than one. But of the two, I'd have to say that I Wish I'd Been Born in Borneo is as catchy as the other, earning a 4, but with nearly as little authenticity, earning a 2. I wanted to see if it was even true that women of Borneo don't wear tops of some sort, and while the Dayak people certainly did even then, there are also examples of women whose corset-type dresses leave their breasts exposed in daily life, so at least this isn't completely baseless. What little it makes up in authenticity, it loses in artistic statement, and earns a one for portraying the women of Borneo as one-dimensional islanders with nothing else to offer besides a view of their breasts, and also for portraying a similarly basic version of every man in the song as a horn dog who can't control himself. Innovation and mastery were both average, and the song earns a total score of 13. She gives them all the ha-ha-has, and Chili Bean are about women, one fat, and whose body personality attracts men that she then rebuffs, and one skinny, and that's all you really hear about her. The song with more meat on the bones is definitely She Gives Them All the Ha-Ha-Has, which earns a 14 with threes across the board, save for artistic statement, which gets a 2. Chili Bean is equally vapid with less quality overall, and earns a 12 with twos in all categories except for one, Innovation. In this song, you will hear some much more interesting and complex saxophone playing than the song would otherwise deserve, courtesy of Paul Beese. The saxophone as an instrument at the time of this recording was only about 75 years old and was relatively new. While its role in jazz would come to be important and cemented, in this song those roles were still being worked out, and it's interesting to get to listen to them develop in this snapshot in time. Of these two performers who leaned more towards laughs than serious sentiment, their scores are almost identical, with Crummett narrowly beating out Cantor with 13.8 to Cantor's 13.7. Crummett's performance in Palestina was literally the difference between his victory and a tie over a hundred years after these songs were recorded. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out through an anchor voicemail. 
If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode of 1920s popular music, this time focusing on orchestral arrangement and songs without singers. Until next time, I've been your host Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. (laughs) 